Good afternoon, morning, evening, folks, and welcome to Raw Chatter, the stuff that matters. And I have got an amazing guest for you today, folks. Her name is Samantha Billingham, and we met on a networking site, and I heard Samantha talking about her story, and oh my God, I had to grab her to come on here and share with you her story, her experience. Samantha is a survivor of domestic abuse, and it's something that we all need to talk more openly about. So Samantha, welcome and thank you for joining me. Tell everybody what you're up to, who you are, what you do and dive straight into your story. Hi Vicky, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thank you for having me as well. So as you just said, I'm a survivor of domestic abuse and my one biggest passion is raising awareness of domestic abuse. The reason is I didn't know I was a victim until it was too late, until I was at the end of that relationship. So I've kind of dedicated and donated all my time and experience to raising awareness for others. So my story started in the early 2000s. I was around 22, 23 at the time. Life for me at that specific moment was just amazing. I was a legal secretary, had an amazing job. I was still living at home with my parents. Healthy bank balance, really busy social life. Life was just really, really good. It was a Friday night. I went to my local pub like I did most Fridays. And the one thing I noticed about this particular Friday was how busy the pub was. And this is going to sound so cheesy, but this is exactly how it happened. I walked into the pub and there he was, this gorgeous person that I really fancied instantly. So for me, there was an incident attraction straight away. It was so bizarre. I've never had that experience before that point or even after that point, but I really fancied him and I really wanted to be with him. And within five, 10 minutes of me being in the pub, I was sitting at his table with him and his friend. We'd got a drink. He made me feel so relaxed, so calm, so safe. He got the most gorgeous blue eyes, a cheeky smile. And for me, it was just amazing at that point, uh, chatting away. And within five, ten minutes, he knew almost everything about my life. He knew where I worked, he knew where I lived, he knew who my friends were. So that's how relaxed and how safe I felt with this person to kind of open up so quickly. And had can I ask, had you ever opened up like that to an almost complete stranger before? No, no. never. And was it never. was it he kept asking you questions, or did you just feel that you were just coming out with stuff? I was I just felt so drawn to him, to his charm. Right. So he didn't need to ask me questions, but I felt he would like to know these things because he seemed very caring, he seemed very charming, he seemed he seemed really focused on me and he, he seemed very interested in me, which saying that out loud now just is the most craziest and bizarre thing ever. Yeah, but this is the stuff that's important because these are the kind of the early signs, aren't they? That people can kind of look back and think about and just, oh, okay, maybe my alarm bell should be ringing slightly because as you said at the beginning, you didn't really know until the end of your relationship that it that it was, you know, abuse. Um, and so just helping our listeners to be really aware of, of how easy it is to get drawn in because so many people who talk about being in an abusive situation afterwards to other people, 
get the reaction of, well, surely you must have known. But you don't, do you, when you're in it? So so that's why I wanted to just highlight that because he was really focused on you. He made you feel special and you used the word he was charming. Yeah, absolutely. I know no one can see me, but I'm sitting here nodding like a nodding dog because you're absolutely right. I had no indication whatsoever that this person was going to treat me the way he did when once we got together because also he was very very popular so everybody came up to us at that table and they were going and they were saying things like oh we've got a good one here he's a good lad i've known him for years he's great he'll look after you and then people were offering to buy us a drink and that as well i didn't have any indication to think anything different yeah why would you so he asked me to go to another pub with him and his friend which I gladly did so I've now opened up to a stranger and now I'm leaving a pub with a stranger going to another pub but again the reaction was exactly the same everybody knew him he seemed so popular and when we got to the second pub he said I really really like you and again when I share my story and I say it out loud now I know what I know it's very bizarre because those are two real big red flags you know he doesn't know me at all he knows about me but he doesn't know me as a person and i definitely don't know him as a person yeah. so from that moment on two weeks later i moved into his flat with him now that is the biggest red flag ever do not ever do that please no that is the biggest red flag ever but even then when i moved into his flat with him he was still the same as when i first met him right so, so there wasn't any alarm bells at all it's perfectly normal and natural to me, he was very caring and very charming. But looking back now, and now I know what coercive control and controlling behaviour is, all the signs were there from the beginning. So the first thing that I remember was the isolation. So it started off as we were sitting on the settee one night and he said, oh, don't go and see your mum tonight. If you love me, you won't go. And it's that when everything's new and exciting anyway, and you do want to spend time with people, whatever relationship you're in. And I thought, yeah, I won't go. I didn't realise that once I didn't go that particular time, I saw my mum less and less because whenever I tried to make contact with her, there was always consequences that I had to pay, whether that was physical or verbal. So he cut me off from my family very, very early on. But because they're so clever, as well as charming you don't see it as that control you sort of see it as oh he's caring he wants to stay with me he wants us to you know be really comfortable and watch the telly um so that was kind of the first sign and then the second one was um i remember going out with a girlfriend and i'd got dressed up short skirt nice top and i remember him calling me a fucking slag saying where the fuck do you think you're going dressed like that you're wow. only going out to draw attention to yourself and for other men to look at you. You don't need to do that now. You've got me. Wow. And I remember looking at him and I was a bit like shocked. But again, I, I wasn't putting anything together at this point because it just seemed odd. Um, I went to the pub. It was less than 10 minutes away from the flat. Walked into the pub, got a drink, sat down and then my phone I was just bombarded with so many phone calls, text messages, voicemails. I'm a fucking slag. I'm chatting everybody up. I've only gone to see other men. If you loved me, you wouldn't leave me on my own. I didn't finish my first drink and I never went out with a friend after that because wow. it was just easier to stay at home with him because right. he was wow. always 
yeah, he was always constantly accusing me of cheating and kind of manipulating me into doing what he wanted to do. Right, and that's the, that's an important thing, isn't it? Because that manipulation is so subtle that yes. you that you don't realise that you are being manipulated. When Absolutely. So he was right. I did love. I thought I loved him at the beginning. I did love him, so I would go back to the flat because I didn't want him to be on his own. Even though we'd invited him to come out with us, right. so I went back to the flat and I didn't go out again after that. And then something else he used to say, which was odd, but again, I didn't think anything of it he always used to tell me the only way I got my job was by sleeping with my boss so I was in my early 20s and I was a legal secretary and I just found it odd and very bizarre for somebody to say that and then one morning he locked me in the flat and he yeah. threw my mobile phone out of the seventh floor window so I couldn't even phone in sick or anything was was there any warning about about that? Was there an argument? No, no. I was all dressed. I was always, I always used to wear a suit. I was always smart, suited and booted. And again, we were sitting there. If you love me, you won't go to work today. And I was like, no, I love my job. I'd worked hard to get where I was. It gave me a sense of belonging, a sense of direction. So as I tried to get off the settee and tried to leave, he locked me in the flat, hid the keys. And then he threw my phone out of the window, so I couldn't even phone him to make an excuse. Oh, my God. And then he was, he he didn't hit me or hurt me physically, but it was all the words and the verbal abuse. And then I managed to get out, I think it was two days later, and the first place I went was my workplace. So and hang on a minute, you, you were locked in for two full days with no phone. Where was he this whole time? So he used to go out, he used to go, he was an alcoholic. So his life was exactly the same as when we met. His life never changed. So when he went out to the pub, he'd go out all day. He'd go and visit his mom. He was very close to his mom, like I was with mine. But it was okay for him to do those things, but I couldn't. So right. I couldn't do any of the normal things that I did before, because if I did, Trust me when I say there was always a consequence. I'd always have to pay. Tell so, us what, what you mean, because you said you said that a little bit earlier, that that if you saw your mum, there would always be verbal or physical consequences. What what did you kind of mean by that? What sort of things would he say or would he do? So one of the, exa one of the examples um, was later on in the relationship. Um, I remember him waking up to go to the toilet about half two, three in the morning. My phone is on the bedside table and I've got this awful feeling that he's going to ring my phone. So obviously just saying that out loud, that's really bizarre. Why would somebody ring your phone when you're actually there? That's exactly what he did. He rang my phone and because my phone was on silent, because I've been phoning my mom secretively, right. um, he phoned it and I couldn't make it ring loud enough or quick enough. He came in. He started screaming and shouting, you've been phoning that fucking bitch again. He grabbed my phone and again, he threw it out of the, the window simply because I'd had a phone call with my mom. Um, you must have gone through a number of phones. Yeah, it was in the good old days when Nokia's were around, you know. Uh, but yeah, I did get through a few phones. But again, looking back, he's cutting, cutting me off from my network because without a phone, yeah. I can't contact anyone at all. Um, so when I went to my workplace and tried to explain what was happening to, um, to my boss, which I found really difficult because I didn't really know what was happening behind closed doors either. So to actually explain it to someone else was really hard. And I tried to explain 
and my boss just didn't want to listen and I was instantly sacked. So I was sacked on the spot for having one day off in my whole career and yeah, I was instantly sacked. Which for That's me, what got me with your story when I heard it. the worst part of the whole situation because I worked really hard to get to where I was. I, yes, I was young, but I worked really hard. I never had a day off, never late. I used to open up, did all my work, everything. I loved it. And for him to be the first person I made that disclosure to and then to get that response, after that point, I never opened up to anybody else again because I thought, what's the point? No one's going to believe me. No one's going to want to listen to me. So what's the point? Wow. So after that point, um. The offender I was I was with, he could control me 24-7, and that's exactly what he did. Every single aspect of my life was controlled. So, for example, going to the toilet, go to the toilet, he'd stand outside the toilet door, looking at his watch, who'd he been phoning, who'd he been texting. I couldn't have a bath on my own. He'd always have to either literally be in the bath with me or in the bathroom. He'd always go through my phone, wanting to know who I was talking to. Um, so I've got three older brothers and one of, he lives away, so um, I don't see him, but we were trying to arrange to go for a drink. So that's me and my brother. He'd got my phone whilst I was um, in the bathroom or in the, I think I was in the kitchen. Uh, he'd got my phone and he was reading it and he went, I think we need to talk. And I was like, I was trying to remember what was in my phone because very quickly I learned to delete messages and my call right. history. And I was like, okay, what do we need to talk about? And he was like, who's this? And I started to laugh because it was my brother. And I said, it's my brother. And when he comes to visit, we're going to go for a drink. He went absolutely mad, shouting, screaming, swearing at me, saying I was disgusting because I was having an affair with my own brother. What? Yeah. Yeah, I was having an affair with my own brother. Um, so that's what my existence was like over a three-year period. Um, the first time he hit me was early on, but not as early as the coercive control and controlling behaviour. But at that point, I didn't know how to tie the two together. So when he hit me for the first time, we were in the bedroom, and I remember him pulling my top, spinning me around and slapping me really hard across the face, and it bruised my eye. And I remember we just both looked at each other as if to say, what the hell just happened there? Right. <clears throat> and then he was sorry. He was so full of remorse and he started crying, something which he did a lot of during that existence. Right. And he was so apologetic. He told me it would never happen again. He didn't mean to do it. He was so sorry. So I was like, yeah, okay, of course he's sorry. I can see that he's sorry. The physical abuse... <laughs> wasn't as bad or as frequent as the controlling so during a three-year period i was strangled i was knocked out i was punched i was slapped and i was spat at wow and to the listeners that might sound really horrific which it is but for me i could deal with that a lot better because once it was done it was done it would hurt it would sting for a while but it was done and dusted whereas a coercive control and controlling behavior was constant and it was like a dripping tap effect so every word that he said to me I was fat I was ugly I was useless that had a bigger impact on me than the physical side and which makes a huge impact yeah. today can I ask you a question about how you were 
feeling in terms of like a state of anxiety where had you gotten to the point where you were always having to think about what you were saying and what oh, you god, were yeah. doing oh god yeah definitely i learned very this might sound too bizarre, bizarre to someone who's lucky enough to, not to be in this situation but i always had to try and be one step ahead and i always had to do things to try and stay safe so for example there were little little signs where I knew something would happen. So if he was tapping his foot, I knew something was going to happen to me. So I'd prepare myself kind of mentally, okay, something's going to happen. And I would literally be like a child and be very childlike. So I'd just let him do whatever it was that he got to do. Because if I provoked him or said anything, it would be worse. Right. So I was very... and hardly spoke so during during that situation there was a point in my life when i wouldn't speak to anyone i'd just literally sit in the chair like just staring into space i wouldn't speak to anyone i wouldn't even look at anyone um and it got so bad that i wouldn't have a wash i wouldn't brush my teeth wouldn't comb my hair i wouldn't do anything at all because those simple things that we all do every day to him, I was doing them because I was having an affair, because I was cheating, yet I wasn't allowed to go out anywhere. Wow. And when we did go out and we were together, I literally couldn't look at anyone, whether it was male or female, because if I did, there'd always be consequences. So I would literally ignore people who I'd known all my life. I wouldn't make eye contact with anyone. I'd always walk with my head looking at the floor because that way I was safe. He wouldn't yeah. say anything to me. So I was always trying to be that one step ahead. I've always got to try and think, what do I need to do next to stay safe? So it's it's working on those eggshells. It's not knowing when the next explosion is going to happen. Wow. Because what was okay one day wasn't okay the next. So it's that not knowing, isn't it? And always being on hyper alert, ready and waiting for where is the next verbal or physical attack going to come from. And that, you know, the, for you to describe that you couldn't even do the, the basic stuff of, of self-care like washing your hair and brushing your teeth but I'm guessing that by that point you kind of had accepted that that this is where you always was your way to survive and to yeah. not create a problem can I just ask was did any of you because obviously if you did go out I'm assuming you didn't go out very often together but if you did see any friends did did friends try and contact you afterwards and say what Sam, what's going on? Can I help? What's happening? They did. My parents, my family and friends, they did um, right at the beginning. So they obviously saw all the things at the beginning that I didn't see. And I, I actually remember one of my old school friends, she came to visit the flat the one day. And that, I now know it was just to make sure that I was okay. But he'd embarrassed her so much because he was blatantly flirting with her in front of me that it made her feel so uncomfortable. She cut the visit really short. And I remember um, going to the lift with her. So came out the front door, there was a long corridor and she just went, what the fuck are you doing? You need to get out now. And I just looked at her and I thought, what an odd thing to say, because before, up until that point, he'd manipulated me and brainwashed me into saying, your friends don't like me. Your friends are jealous of what we got. They're going to try and split us up. So he'd already told me that. So when she actually said that, I was like, oh, my God, he's right. How did he know wow. that? But yeah. they did try so hard. I sofa surfed um, many times. That friend I just mentioned, I slept on her settee a few times because during that relationship, I left quite a few times, but I'd always go back. 
Um, I can't remember. Did you the first back or did you go back willingly and, and fall for the, it's going to be different this time? Yeah, it's yeah. a who, when they suck you back in, where he'd uh, bombard me with those lovely text messages. You know, I love you. I'm so sorry. Yeah. It'll never happen again. It was the drink. You shouldn't believe me when I've had a drink. I really love you. And because he knew I loved him, I'd go back. And then it would be okay for a couple of days and things were really nice and things were really loving and happy but then things would go back to how they were before. So every time I tried to leave, he'd cut up my clothes, he'd throw them away, he'd sell my perfume, he'd, um, as a punishment for me leaving, knowing that I'd go back because I did that so many times before. So he's always got that power and control over me, even when I've left. Um, I even went to a safe house, he found me there. And every time I went back, because I loved him, I wanted him to change and I wanted to be the person who changed him and I wanted to be the reason why he changed. And he knew all that. He knew I loved him. He knew how I felt about him. And that was his power over me. Absolutely. So what and how did you manage to get out of it? What triggered you being able to finally go, oh, my God, and, and t talk us through that process? So... I had a baby with the offender I existed with for three years because I was naive and I believed that being a father to our child would change him. It didn't. Uh, one November night in 2006, we'd both been out, we'd both been to the pub and apparently I said the wrong thing to him and he slapped me, spitting my lip open whilst I was holding our 10-month-old daughter in my arms. Wow. That for me was the biggest wake-up call I could ever have. Um, I remember him going off. I don't know where he went. He went off somewhere. I phoned the police, explained what had happened. They did come out to the house. There was a male and a female officer. But because I'd be, been drinking and I was intoxicated, they wouldn't take my statement. Um, so it took so much strength and courage to make that phone call because I was absolutely petrified of this person and I knew exactly what he was capable of. But I knew at that point I'd got to, I'd got to change because he wouldn't. So he actually came back, I think it was the next morning, and I've got to try and carry on as normal as possible because if he gets wind of something different, then he's going to know I'm up to something. Right. So on the Monday morning, I got my daughter, I put her in the pram, and because the only place I could go on my own was shopping, I told him I was going to the shop. Is there anything you want? I won't be long. Went straight to the police station, made that final statement. And on the same day, I went to a firm of solicitors and instructed um, a solicitor for a non-molestation order. Right. But because I didn't explain the whole process to me, I didn't realise or understand that someone would come to the house, knock on the front door and actually serve papers to him. Oh, gosh. I wasn't allowed to answer the front door. So when somebody came knocking on the door, he's upstairs in the bed, well, we're both upstairs. He looks out the window, looks at me and shouts, who the fucking hell is that? It's a male, a big birdie male with a bandana on. And I'm like, I have no idea. I cannot open the door because if I open the door. So it took two days for them to serve the papers on him. Wow. And then it took him about three months to get in touch with me because he instructed his solicitor for contact and parental responsibility. But my wake-up call was my daughter. She saved my life without a shadow of a doubt. If I hadn't had my daughter, who's 16 this year, I would be dead. Because I 
had no reason to I couldn't see a reason for me to leave when it was just myself and it was just me um, and I think so, that's so important for, for people to to understand that your whole self-worth and self-confidence just gets totally eradicated doesn't it and that you're just a shell of of who you are and and you just believe that this is all you deserve and this is your existence and it, it happens I think this is this is the thing that, that people need to know isn't it and this is what you share isn't it when you're talking about this to companies and to and to, to big places where you you now speak about this and help them to understand that it's it's so subtle and it's a process that when you're in it you cannot see it and it's not because you're stupid and it's not because you know you're, you're not intelligent or you, you you just aren't aware of it it's they are clever They've usually done it before. They're usually serial offenders. So they've gotten better and better and better at it. And it's usually somebody like you who's never been in a, in a deep and meaningful long-term relationship before because you are a perfect target for them. And, and the more skilled they get and the more you start to believe what they're telling you, suddenly now you're in it and you just don't understand. But for you, your daughter, like for me, my daughter was the reason for me to get free of my alcohol and, and, and craziness around food and body image and all that kind of stuff and actually survive. And for you, it's sometimes we can't do it for ourselves, can we? No, no, we definitely not. Somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in the midst of it all, I, I generally didn't know. I'd never heard of domestic abuse, didn't know what it was. I'd never seen a post and nothing at all like that. Um, and as you say, I do raise a lot of awareness on social media because for me, I only realised when I was given um, a questionnaire, which I now believe was from Women's Aid. And I remember looking at this questionnaire and if you answer so many questions, then, then you're a victim of domestic abuse. But it was so powerful for me because every single one that I ticked was all about controlling and coercive control. So for me, I broke down at that point because I just didn't realise how controlled I had actually been during that period of time. Um, so I just remember breaking down. I was like, oh, my God. And then you get that blame. Oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I let that happen? But it's, it's never anybody's fault. Domestic abuse happens because abusers choose to abuse Correct. We don't choose to be a victim. I didn't wake up one morning and say, right, I'm going to meet a guy and he's going to abuse me for the next three years. But they don't only brainwash and manipulate us. They do the same with our friends, with our family, with our colleagues, because for them looking in, we've got the perfect relationship. He's always helping the little old lady next door. He's always really polite. He's always really charming. And then when we find the strength and courage to speak out, people are like, not him. He's lovely, but I only spoke to him the other day. No, are you sure? Yeah. What did you do? You must have said something for him to do that. Right. And it's a complex cycle that unless you've been in it, you, you genuinely cannot understand, which is why... That, which is so important, which is why we were flagging up the stuff right at the very start of our conversation, because you said everybody was flocking around him and, oh, you've got a good one there. He's such yeah. a really nice guy and he was obviously very popular. And you go to the second pub and they're saying the same stuff. And so and you, you realise hindsight is an amazing thing that, that this is, you know, he's, he's got this down to a fine art. Yeah. He absolutely has. He was a serial offender as well. So before I met him, he he treated every single partner exactly the same. Yeah. So... When I set up Soda in 2009, um, it started off as a Facebook page. And I didn't realise that, bizarrely enough, one of his ex-partners was following all the work that I did. 
So he's got um, three other children by three different women, and then he's got a daughter with me. So my daughter's got half-brothers who she met about three or four years ago. And through that meeting, I ended up, we ended up going to an event where his, his ex was. And we had a very brief conversation. And I remember saying to her, uh, the process and how I left, what happened, he split my lip open and left. And she just looked at me, her jaw, jaw dropped and she went, that is exactly the same as what happened to me. And I also know there's another mom and it was exactly the same. She was holding their son and he punched her and blacked her eye. So his process and his controlling and his behaviour was exactly the same. And I also know that he was in relationships after me and he was exactly the same with them as well. So they are very clever. They are very manipulative. And it is a process. And in the work that I do, we actually talk about the cycle. Because right. sometimes people think it's a one-off or it's just a domestic. If domestic abuse was as easy as society thinks, then we'd all be okay. Because right. a lot of people say, you know, oh, if they ever hit me, I'd leave and things like that. It really isn't as simple as that at all. But everybody's an expert on something that they've never experienced, aren't they? Very Let's true. face it. <laughs> <Very true. laughs> so tell so tell people now, because you because I mean you said that you started Soda, which stands for Survivors of Domestic Abuse, as a Facebook um group originally. But now it's so much bigger than that, isn't it? So to let people know what you're up to, how they can get in contact with you if they need to, and how you can help other people and companies to be aware of this stuff. And let's start talking more. Yeah, so definitely. that was all the good stuff. Oh, so I'm all over social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you'll always find me raising awareness of domestic abuse because I think that's really, really important. As we've said, there's a lot of people in that situation who don't know that they're in, being abused because domestic abuse is about power and control. It's not always about the physical side that we often focus on. So I set up Soda, as you said, it started, started off as a, a Facebook page. So I've actually got an online support group with over 800 people, men and women, all across the country. It's a safe haven for them to come together without judgment. They can share their stories, they can ask questions, they can ask uh, for support. Um, so that is really, really popular. It can't be found in search engines or search bar. People have to get in touch with me directly. And then I have to physically send them a request to be able to join the group. It is very, very secure. It is very, very, safe. very safe. Only people within the group can see anything that's said within the group. And there's also an option to post anonymously as well if people need to. I've right. also got um, an awareness page, which is open. Again, that's on Facebook. And again, it's about raising awareness. But now I'm actually running domestic abuse awareness workshops via Zoom and Teams. And I'm aiming at the moment uh, at businesses, organisations, because of my experience of being instantly sacked when I made that disclosure, I um, empower and enhance people's understanding and knowledge of domestic abuse. And I always help them acknowledge address and adapt to domestic abuse in the workplace so it's simply believing and listening and then signposting right. um, and i think I thought they're really really powerful presentations and i think the, the powerful part for me is all the questions that the attendees ask because it's okay to sit there and talk about your story and say this this and this 
but somebody might have a specific question that they want to ask. So I've always been really open. I've always been really honest. And I've always answered any question that's thrown at me. And I think the attendees take a lot away from, from just that aspect of it. Um, it gives them a real understanding and in-depth knowledge of, of what domestic abuse feels like. Brilliant. And this is such important stuff. So if, I mean, your experience of, of being instantly sacked, I mean, I know we're talking back in the early 2000s here, but that's not the point because my my guess is that that would probably potentially still happen in a number of companies today because people just don't understand what goes on and how they can support you and that they and that you need supporting because when that lifeline for you was taken away, I mean, that really kind of escalated things to a whole new level, didn't it, for you? Yeah, um, it took away everything, your independence, your yeah. ability to earn money, your ability to socialise with, with just different people, and that really closed down your world significantly. So we're going to put all of the links to how people can connect with you on Facebook and um, and on LinkedIn. And have you got anything else that you'd like to, to share with people to wrap up with, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really, really excited about this. As I've said throughout this whole interview, my main passion is raising awareness. So I'm really honoured and humbled to be working with a theatre production um, uh, who are based in Liverpool. They're called Perception Theatre. They are amazing. And with Soda and Perception are working together and we're producing a mini series of domestic abuse awareness uh, little mini series. So what we've done is some of the brave um, survivors in my online support group have shared their story. Obviously, there's no names, no locations or anything given. It is purely their story. And we're having actors and actresses actually playing out their story. So this can go on social media and be shared to raise that awareness. So I'm really excited about that. So that's um, within the next few months, that will be. And we hope it's going to be piloted in Liverpool. And then we're hoping to bring it to the West Midlands and tour tour around with it so we're hoping to put it on at our local town hall and again it's it's about that raising awareness because i think as a society we're frightened to talk about domestic abuse and that's because one we, we want to pretend it doesn't happen and two well it's not happening to me so why should i know so okay. that's why for me raising awareness is is that i always say that's the one thing that we can all do for victims of domestic abuse so if you see a tweet or, or anything just share it because you just don't know how that is going to help a person who's reading that so that's why that I'm so absolutely that incredible and, and as you said your community group is a private group which is very very safe but it's for men and women alike and and i think it's important that we kind of also say it, it we've got this idea society programming that that this is something that men do to women right and it's that's so not true it can be same-sex relationships it can be that women are the instigators and you know this whole idea that this is what it looks like is is just so off kilter of what it actually is all about isn't it that Absolutely. the awareness is the most important thing and the fact that you're bringing it into into theaters and, and taking it around towns and actually letting people feel that they can start a conversation whereas at the moment i think as you say it's such a taboo subject and that's why i wanted to do this podcast because what i'm trying to to bring is is let's get rid of all these taboos that are out there about stuff that we shouldn't talk about because 
lack of education is the key. It's not about information. It's about education and understanding. And we can only get that, can't we, by listening to people and asking questions, which is exactly what you do. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to say as well, just talking about the male survivors in my workshop, uh, I actually have a, we have a discussion. And the question is, what do you really think of when you hear the word domestic abuse? So and a lot, um, some of the answers that I've got on my uh, slides are we do think it's a man hitting a woman. And I did one yesterday with West Midlands Ambulance Service. And somebody reminded me of that horrible image that we always see on social media where there's a woman sitting on the settee and she's got her hands over her head and there's a man and he's got a ma he's, obviously his fists coming down on her. And for me, that is a huge barrier because there are so many people in a relationship that are being abused, but not physically. So yeah. they don't know that they're in an abusive relationship. They won't make that phone call. They won't ask for help because that image isn't portraying what they're going through. So that's why it's really important, as you say, to have these conversations, to get them out there so we can help save lives. That, that's why we do what we do. Absolutely. And Samantha, long may you keep doing it. And let's just hope that we do start to get more and more awareness, not just across the UK, but, but globally, because this stuff is not talked about because it tends to go on behind closed doors. It's very secret. And it's about time we started blasting open them closed doors and talking about all of this stuff. So thank you so much once again for your time. And for those of you who are listening, if anything that we have said has resonated with you, even if it's just started to make you think, oh, maybe I am in a relationship and this is happening, then get in touch with Sam and just know that she is available for you to connect with she has a community she has her open page and her private page do not worry and sit on it start talking about it thank you so much sam thank you take care bye